Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. It's your hosts, Stuart in LA and Jacob in... I'm in the land where I'm dreaming of seeing all you fonts. <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll need a map to show people. You need a map. <laughs> I'm here to tell you right now. The Hobbit fooled me. When I read The Hobbit, I was like, I don't need a map. I'm going to follow The Hobbit. Sure, there might be 14 other little characters trying to reclaim their kingdom and a wizard's popping in and out and a dragon and all that. But there's one character that matters. You pay attention to him. Wherever he goes, all the funny names he encounters, he's the primary character. I was going to read Lord of the Rings in the same way. I'm here to tell you. Two Towers will change your mind on that. It is very clear with this second book that you have to invest in the world. You have to invest in these supporting characters. You have to know where you are and who these people are. There's no skimming and just concentrating on Frodo and Sam. Frodo and Sam are not in the first 180 pages of this second book here. Yeah, the way these books are structured, and it was like this in Fellowship of the Ring, each book is divided into two books. So there's, I guess, six books total, not three, but six. But, you know, with Fellowship, you kind of had Frodo getting to Rivendell and, and the Fellowship forming, and then that second book was the story of the Fellowship until the end where they were all broken up. Here, though, they have now divided this. You have one book for Frodo and Sam. That's the second book, so forget about them for a while. Mm. And another book for all the other characters, and those characters get split up, so you can put, like, another two books into that third book here. Like, it gets super confusing just trying to describe it. Yeah, my, my whole attitude was... I want to minimize complications. I want to minimize having to learn the names, the other ones. If it's not relevant to Sam and Frodo, it's not relevant. You can't approach it that way. It's I'm here to say we're going to break this down. I think the most helpful thing you can do is get an edition with a map. I know you didn't have one, Jacob. Did you get yeah. one this time? You know what? I, I felt like I needed one of those war room maps where I had the yes. little figures and I could move them around. Luckily, this is the not Middle Earth anymore. This is the age of the internet. Yes. So I found a useful wiki for Lord of the Rings that did have some maps. I did end up using those just to get a frame of reference because, yeah, there's a lot of the Southern Kingdom and the Western Kingdom and mm -hmm. South of the Southern Kingdom. Yeah, there's a lot of geography going on. Though... I do have to say, I, I don't feel it's as detrimental as I did with Fellowship, where I felt like there's a lot of walking and not a lot of stuff happening. Here, yes, a lot of geography, a lot of kingdoms, but more action, which I feel helps it here. Even though there's more to try to keep in your head, more is going on and, and it moves quicker for me. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The pacing is better. There's more events in the novel. But again, that puts you on your game. You have to keep up then. It's no longer a walk walk of one character with a bunch of people trailing behind them. It's not one character and a chorus. It's not Frodo's journey to melt the ring. There is a complicated war with many fronts. I'm going to give you my tip. 
Here's basically what I can tell you. North and south are good. East and west are bad. There are two towers. The two towers are in the east and to the west of the characters as they approach this area of Middle Earth. Up to this point, by and large, the journey of Fellowship of the Rings followed the exact same geography of The Hobbit. They were going in the same direction. They were covering many of the same areas. They took a hard south towards the end of the book and they were headed to a new elf realm. That was kind of new. But other than that, it was more or less the same footsteps, but now we are in a totally different area. The northern area is where all the characters are when they split up. I guess you call it Rohan. It seems like a really good place to get a horse. Yes, the horse lords. I guess that's their thing. Right. I failed to notice or mention last podcast that, yes, Frodo and Sam were getting away on a boat and that they were going to Mordor, but I didn't mention that there were six people being left behind in peril. (laughs) And a big thing that's happening here in Rohan is that they're going to have a a fight with orcs. Right at the start of this, we're getting into conflict, to, to slinging arrows and swords and bloodshed and death. Yeah, we get the death of, a, I guess, another major character. We had Gandalf die in the last book, and now Boromir. I don't feel as sad with Boromir, though. How could you? Yeah, he's such a jerk. He, you know, he has this moment at the end where he says, I have paid because he he confesses that he tried to take the ring from Frodo, but he's been such a jerk. Here's the funny thing. I kind of get him by the end of this book. When we meet one of his siblings, I'll start to understand why Boromir is the way he is, but... For his death scene, I don't get that. I'm like, oh, I guess that's kind of sad he died because he's a good guy, but he was a jerk to everyone. People, at least the full-sized humans, kind of liked him or put up with him, but I never had much sympathy for him. I didn't even know this existed. My hazy memories of those Peter Jackson movies from a decade ago, I thought there was only one human in the troupe. I don't remember a Boromir. I'll be curious to see these movies again and see who's playing him, but no, it was not sad to me that it was gone. I was like, Like, oh, good. One less name to have to keep track of. (laughs) I'm grateful for that. But Boromir is from the south. We are in Rohan. He was pushing everyone to get to Gondor. He wanted to get to the capital, his hometown, minus Tirith, I guess is how you, you say it. And that's where Sam and Frodo actually end up sailing to. They're going to go to the southern region. It's also a human region. I couldn't tell. Is there a conflict between north and south? Is Rohan and Gondor, are they kind of frenemies? Yeah, that's the feeling I got. Now, Boromir, if you remember from that first book, he wants that ring. He wants everyone to go to Gondor because they're really the only kingdom fighting and staying off. Suron. They're like borders, right, with Suron. And so they've been in battle and war, and no one's really come to help them. They're like, we're saving Middle Earth. No one's helping us out. But yeah, Rohan, I, I guess we'll find out why perhaps they haven't been going to help Gondor. But th- there's even like mention that Rohan, they're, if you want to get into all the ancestry charts. And I don't, but I will a little. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the short version. It does make reference like they're humans, but they came from the same people as the Bard. And born, if you remember from The Hobbit, the bear man. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And Bard, who ran the lake city, who shot down the dragon. So it it seems like they had common ancestry, but then they split up, and so there's history between them. Yeah, it should be said, Tolkien has it all worked out. Somewhere the Cimmerillion is sitting around. He has all the (laughs) histories of all these families, the dynasties. It's all worked out, and he adds a lot of that in here. I have to wonder, was he thinking about other Middle-Earth adventures after he finished this Lord of the Rings? Because there are so many details here that you 
do not need to know. They are not relevant to this battle, but I might think would play into being excellent books and conflicts for another time. Yeah, I mean, this took so long to write. I, I think it was 12 years, and he was writing The Cimmerillion, and he wanted that published with this. So I think he j he just had all these stories in his head. He had this huge mythology, and it was just leaking out all mm -hmm. over the place. Yeah, and maybe a, a more stern editor would be like, gotta go, gotta go. Me, basically. If yes. I were cutting down this book, I would be like, ah, this is not relevant. We don't need to know that. But if you like lore, if you want to steep yourself in Middle-earth, there are a lot of details here, some of which I did skip over, but... But the gist of it I was getting was that there was a complicated shared history between these two human civilizations. Rohan and Gondor are not on the same page with how to best deal with this conflict, this War of the Rings that's happening. And yes, Boromir had a different idea than Aragon about where the Fellowship should head now that Frodo and Sam are gone. Boromir is killed, and Aragon, I think it's funny, he doesn't honor his last wish. He's like, please go! And he's like, no, <laughs> no, we're going to go find the other two hobbits, because yeah. lest we forget, there are two more hobbits. It's not just Sam and Frodo here. Yeah, Merry and Pippin, they go missing. They're kidnapped by orcs. The orcs were told to get a halfling, and here's two halflings, and those are the ones they grab. That I, I think this is fun. Well, I don't know how fun it is for Merry and Pippin, <laughs> but as their adventures with these orcs, because they think, hey, they have the ring, they have something that their master wants. But yeah, they've been kidnapped, and so Aragon and Gimli and Legolos, they decide to go find the two hobbits. Yeah, and Pip and Merry have done Sam and Frodo a favor, basically. They have been insisting on joining this troop. I don't even know why, because I thought hobbits were lazy and homebodies, but from the beginning, they were never needed or wanted, but they said, no, we're coming with you. We're coming with you. We're coming with you. And so now they've actually done Frodo and Sam a favor, I think, because, yeah, the orcs are looking for two hobbits that know something about this war. They don't They don't know about the ring, but they, they know that the hobbits know something. And so they see two hobbits, they get them. It's probably why Frodo and Sam can get away on the water, because the orcs stop fighting. They they don't continue to battle Aragorn and Gimli and the rest of them. It, they, they have what they need. They're going to head west to Isengard. I mentioned that there's two towers, evil on both sides. To the west is one of those towers. It is where the evil wizard lives. Saruman. Not Saren. I'm not even going to use Saren anymore. They call him the Dark Lord. The Dark Lord is off in the east in Mordor, where Sam and Frodo are heading. In the West, we have Saruman, who I thought was in cahoots with the Dark Lord. I thought that he was a wizard like Gandalf that had gone bad and was now working for the man. Well, it's not quite the... He's a new front in the battle, is the way I read it now. He actually has gotten greedy. He wants the ring for himself. I think he'd fight the Dark Lord to have Sam and Frodo. Oh, definitely. And that's one of the things I like about this is complicated. It has all these fronts and relationships and geography is. I, I do like that it is complicated. You have Suramon and is he working with the Dark Lord? Well, probably to get help. He's gotten some of the Dark Lord's orcs. He's created his own, the fighting Urukai. You know, the, there's rumors that it's men and orcs mixed together. 
Later on, we'll find out a, a, about another evil that the Dark Lord kind of just lets exist because it serves his needs. But I, I like that. Yeah, Suramon here, he's in cahoots with the Dark Lord. He's communicating with them. We'll find out he has like a crystal ball yeah. where they're talking. But yeah, he wants to get this ring. He really wants to be the one in charge. And that's what really is the danger here. Everyone is treacherous here. You could be betrayed by everyone. We saw it with Boromir. And now, you know, you think if you're joining up with Satan, you'd be kind of scared to betray him and go against him. But nope, not Saruman. He's willing to do that. Right. You don't fall in allegiance of the Dark Lord by getting the ring. When you get the ring, it brings out the worst in you and you're the one. I mean, I think it's really a statement about absolute power. It's really, once you try to be in control of everything, you really are a self-centered son of a bitch. You really won't (laughs) serve anyone else. I mean, you really, it, it becomes self-interest to self-destruction. And that's what Saruman had. He probably would have been a very good disciple for the Dark Lord, but now he's just a third front in this ring war. What's happening here in the West is a different kind of conflict. All of his orc armies, they're not serving what's going on in Mordor. Yeah, and we see them fighting. The two orc armies have joined together as they're traveling back with Pippin and Mary. And you know what? I, I got to say, you know, the Hobbit, there was one Hobbit we cared about, Bilbo. I think we're supposed to care about Frodo, but Mary and Pippin are my favorite Hobbits here. I like how they're smart. You know, Pippin, he pretends to be Gollum to try to trick one of the orcs to search him for the ring. You know, he starts doing that Gollum, Gollum <laughs> thing in his voice and saying, my precious. I like these characters. They're proactive they're actively trying to get away you know later on they're going to join up with treebeard uh, one of my favorite characters in, in this book and they've got spunk i i don't know we'll talk about frodo later but i never feel like he's the hobbit you're rooting for for me it's mary and pippin at least in the two towers well they had the luxury of being more frivolous because frodo is tasked with having to carry this evil ring on a chain around his neck yeah he's just glum the whole time you just he wears the weight of the world literally on his shoulders and so yeah he's never any fun you actually end up paying much more attention to sam than you ever do to frodo because sam still has a personality mary and pippin yeah they have fun they cut up they're a little bit more comic relief here and yeah even though that they're unwanted baggage and nobody ever thought they would be an asset to this team they do end up saving everyone's ass because they get it away by their own devices they aren't rescued they figure a way to cut their bonds escape to the forest still in Rohan and they befriend I believe the creatures that really help turn a major conflict we're going to get in the middle of the story they befriend the Ents which are what giant trees that talk and yeah they're tree like they're tree herders as they say and you know what here a lot of time is spent on this Ent lore like we learn about the Ent wives and how they've disappeared Mm. and but here's one of the things that made Lord of the Rings such a phenomenon when it was just a novel before the movies ever came out was it really caught on with the counterculture movement, you know, coming out in the mid fifties and then the hippie movement coming out. You get this big, almost environmentalist character, Treebeard or Fangorn. He's got a million names, just like everyone in these books. Yes. But yeah, you know, he's, he's, you know, I am not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. No one has stood up for the trees. He talks about Suramon, how he has a mind of metal and 
wheels and he does not care for growing things like there you know first of all we had smog in the hobbit it's spelled a little different but the bad guy was smog that would become a big thing in the 60s pollution yeah <laughs> yes and now we got this this living tree that's kind of going against the industrialized society the industrialized wizard at least Suramon, who's using machines instead of wizardry and this is something that i think propelled helped propel these books into popularity get it in with the college crowd is you know they're they're getting into those hippie movies movements and that. This is fun stuff. I like this. I, I've always liked C-list characters. I'm never much for like the main characters. So I like these side characters here. And I'm actually drawn in by, even though the tree beard stuff is super slow, it fits the character. They're trees. They've lived like since the beginning of the world. And so they talk slow. They say forever. They talk about how their names are always growing and how it just tells a story. I, I like the mythology. It kind of slows things down here, but it really sets up. Yeah. Like you said, the tree beard is going to be responsible for the turning of this war. I agree with that. And so I'm glad we spent some time with him and the Ents. Yeah, I like him too. And I think it's amusing. It, it sort of breaks it up. If everyone that Merry and Pippin met was an enemy that they'd have to battle, that would get old. We, yeah, we're not sure at first. We think Treebeard is wise, but we're not sure that he's going to have... He is so slow to act, to do anything. He's like, let me think about it. Let me go find my friends and think about it. You're like, oh boy. But but it is part of the charm of the segment. And I, I got to say, if you're going to have this be your representation of the natural world, this is great. This is what you go with. Cut all of that stuff from Fellowship of the Rings with Tom Bobadil or whatever and his wife Goldberry, all of that. <laughs> that was the same. That was redundancy. Those were those natural characters in the forest in the Shire. They weren't interesting. They're not fighting in this war. You cut all that out. You make the natural world represented by these tree creatures. I think that's great. I, I love the fact that people in cities don't even know about them. They're so old that they're legends. They're People are totally stunned when these trees finally do come into the battle, into the action. They think that Gandalf is going, yeah. has, has done it by his own wizardry. They don't realize that, no, they can do this on their own. They don't need a wizard to make trees come to life. Now, I mentioned Gandalf. We thought he was dead. Nope. That's a, a big surprise. Well, okay. It's not a surprise at all. I'd seen the movies. I knew he was coming back. But it is a big revelation that as they're mourning the death of Boromir and giving him a burial at sea, a crazy white wizard comes doddering out of the forest. They think it's Saruman for a minute because Saruman is the, the white wizard, right? No, something's happened to Gandalf. Can you explain exactly what, Jacob? I never did totally get this. Magic? Yeah, you know, it, he goes off into this tale where he fought, he continued to fight the Balrog as they were falling, and it sounds like they fell for like ages fighting, and then they fought all over the place, and finally he smote the Balrog down, and he died, and he said he had passed on, but then he was sent back for a brief of time until his task is done. That's the quote. It never says who. I, I'm assuming, you know, wizards, we don't get a whole lot of information on the wizards. You know, Treebeard at one point says, wizards came over on the boats with the first great men. Like, we never really get a feeling of where these wizards came from, who they are. So I guess maybe Wizard God resurrected him <laughs> until he had to do what he needed to do. I do know he goes back to Lothlorien, and that's where he's healed. And now he is, he's the resurrected being. He is the second coming of Christ. He is now Gandalf the White. Right. And I take it that White, that is the highest order of the wizards before he was gray. We heard about Radagast the Brown uh, in The Hobbit. So I, I guess, you know, he says he is as Suramon should have been. 
So we, we read earlier that Suramon, he wears this like coat of changing colors. He's betrayed the white. And so Gandalf, I guess now is the lead wizard. It's, it's not very clear. It's, it's wizard magic. He's resurrected and elves heal him and he's back to complete his task. I'm happy to see him. I think he's a major character. I wouldn't have wanted his story to stop with Fellowship of the Rings. That he has turned white. Yeah, it just feels like he gets to be the boss now. They fired Saruman. Whoever makes <laughs> these decisions, the, a pay grade higher than everyone in Middle-earth, apparently, has decided that no, Saruman is no longer going to lead the Council of Wizards, and so they're taking his white away. They're giving it to Gandalf. He's been promoted, and now he's got to use his power to rally the troops and I think he's gonna got to do something about Saruman before he goes to Mordor and checks in on Frodo and Sam. So really, this first half of the novel is about gathering the troops. That in Rohan, first he's got to to weed out Saruman's evil influence in this kingdom of men called Aragus, and the, he finds that the king Theoden has been perverted by Wormtongue. I mean, why is it a surprise that your your councilman, <laughs> yes. the guy that gives you all the advice that whispers in your ear, if he's called Wormtongue, do you really think he's a positive influence? Yeah. Grima Wormtongue. It's, it's, it's bad both names there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a mouthful, and it really tips your hand to what everyone should recognize, which is that Saruman has been, I guess what, holding back Rohan from really entering this War of the Rings with gusto by telling the king to not get involved. Yeah, earlier, you know, when... Aragon and the others, when they confront some of the riders of Rohan, they gimly ask, are you giving horses to the enemy? That was a rumor. So there, there were rumors that there was a dark influence over Rohan and, and we see it here. Yeah. We'll, we'll find out later about the voice of Sauron, that he has a, a very smooth voice that could trick you and cause doubt. And so I, I guess he's working through Grima here. Yeah, it's magic, right? It's not just that he's a diplomatic son of a bitch that's a, with a slippery tongue. It, it's a spell or something that he's put the king under. Yeah, you know, in, in the movie, we'll talk about it, but there it's definitely magic. He, when I'm reading this, I don't get that same sense. It's it's maybe he's just worn him down with his silver tongue or something. I guess there could be magic involved. I don't think it's as clear in the book. It could go either way, and I, I wasn't sure. So your take is that it is just more that this Grima is Machiavelli and yes. has talked the king into making bad choices. Okay, I can go with that. For whatever the reason, he's working for Saruman. He's been bought off by the west side, and he's going to run to that tower when Gandalf exposes him. They give him a chance, like... Theoden, the king, like once he comes out of this stupor, he's like, hey, look, you could prove yourself and ride into battle with us, or you could slink away to whatever, but if I find out you're with Saruman, I'm going to kill you. It's They let a lot of people go that I feel they shouldn't throughout this story. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, a kindly king, too kindly, exactly. I guess he felt like he owed this guy uh, the benefit of the doubt, and uh, he shouldn't have. You're right, because it, well, he ends up not doing anything more to the plot. Grima basically just heads all the way back to the west to Isengard to basically become the pet of Saruman in the tower. Now, there are a lot of characters that are coming in and out of here. The only one that seems to matter, he's, he seems to almost join the circle and uh, to fill the slot that was exited when Boromir died, is Eomer. He's the adopted son of the king. He's He, I think he's like a nephew because there's Eowyn, who's Eomer's 
sister and she's called the sister daughter so i take it that's theoden's <laughs> sister's daughter which yes yeah, sister a niece, daughter right? <laughs> had me thinking some strange yeah. things about middle earth i i got very confused about this lineage i think i'm correct in saying though that Ermir is possibly going to be the king when theoden steps down yes because we find out theoden's son died in a battle when he was in his stupor he didn't even know his son has passed so i think eomer is the one that's next in line Okay, so I know the next book is called Return of the King. What I'm wondering is, as they head off into battle, is Eomir going to be that king that's returning, or is it going to be Aragorn? I mean, we kind of like Aragorn. He's been hanging out a a while now. He's a human. He has some legacy to the elf that basically chopped the ring off the finger of the bad guy so long ago. It was a human that chopped the ring off. They were fighting with elves. Oh, he was? Okay. All right. Well, thanks for clarifying. (laughs) Aragorn is a full human. Full-blooded. All right. That is my question, really, is is what is Aragorn's title what could he inherit here what well who are his people is he from gondor or is he from rohan my take and i'm trying to dance around spoilers but jump ahead a little bit we're gonna meet Foromir, boromir's brother yeah and we get some background on gondor which i think was really helpful to understand who boromir is Oh, I needed to pay attention to that? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because... I didn't. What you find out was Gondor, all the kings were gone, and so it was stewards that had run Gondor for hundreds of years, but they they were never considered kings, and so Boromir was the son of a steward, and there was this bitterness that, like, we've held up this great kingdom, but because we're not kings, we're stewards, that someday kings are going to return... That we're, we're lowlier. So I, that, I get Boromir's angst once I get to that part. But what I take that as, cause my take, it, when I was even first reading this, I think Aragorn's a king. Like I, I, yes. it's so heavily alluded to. So I believe he is that rightful king. He, it says he comes from Isilador who cut the ring off and that, so he stands to, if he is the king, stands to inherit Gondor. Oh, see, and I thought that he was from the land where Saruman was from. Isengard or whatever. Isengard. Uh, uh, the names. Uh, the names. <laughs> Everything is so complicated here. And I know I, I'm trying harder than I did last book. But, I mean, people got names for their horses. People got names for their swords. People are going to name their shoes. And I mean, Look, when we meet Fordmere, he has a whole different name for Gandalf that they start calling yes. him. Like, there are so many names. Like, there's not just Isengard, they also call it Orthonk and all these, oh. so many names. <laughs> yeah, I started to write things down and then I just realized, no, I'm going to wiki it. Like, there are some very good websites that will help you figure this stuff out. I think it would be very hard to do this alone reading this book without the internet. I can't imagine what it was like to read this back in the 60s, 70s, uh, 80s. It would just be so hard to keep track of all this. Yeah, I was lucky. When I first read this, I read my dad's copies that he used when he was writing the animated film. So he had annotations and notes all over those books that were really helpful. I wish I had that copy this time. Yeah, I I can imagine. So... As you mentioned, there are two books here. We're going to get to the conclusion of that first book, the story of everybody but Sam and Frodo, basically. And it all sort of transpires as they leave this kingdom of Rohan and head towards the once white wizard in Isengard. Uh, it, it all comes to a head in Helm's Deep. 
And I gotta say, I don't remember this from the movie, but this is really a highlight of this novel. I think that the battle that transpires between orcs and the humans and our fellowship here in the dikes and the walls that are of this Helm's Deep, fantastic stuff. Yeah, I, I'm surprised you don't remember that from the movie. That's kind of like the key thing in the second one, but we'll get there. All I remember about the movie is Gollum, and we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, it's it's hazy. So, yeah, I, what what I do love, you know, they do do more in this the book, I think, with this battle than they do in the movie. I, I love, yeah, you get this huge battle at Helm's Deep. The humans end up locking themselves in the caves because there's they're outnumbered like 10 to 1. I think it says there's a 1,000, maybe 2,000 humans against 10,000 plus orcs. So they're outnumbered. They hold their own for a while, but finally they ride out. Of course, Gandalf, we should say, he has disappeared again. He's like... Yeah. I got to take off. He has that annoying habit. He's like, oh, I got to go somewhere, but you should go into battle. Yeah. Okay. But he does help save the day along with the trees. I love that, you know, as this battle climaxes, all the orcs, and, and there's also men, men from the south, I think they're called, the wild men that have joined Saruman and the, and the orcs. They're all running away, and the, the trees come in, and like they, you, I love the imagery that Tolkien uses, these trees just kind of wavering, and nothing escapes them. Like, orcs run in, and nothing runs out. You know, and I'm going to credit Mary and Pippin for this. I mean, they got the ball rolling. Yes, Gandalf has an influence on everybody. And yes, he did go off and I think point the way for where they should go, this tree army that ends up riding in here. But I think that if Mary and Pippin hadn't escaped, hadn't started that dialogue with Treebeard, these things are so slow to act, so slow to make up their mind. I think they needed all of that time to agree that they should join Gandalf to go here. And so I, it, it's their victory, really, when Merry and Pippin show up here at the end. And they don't do much hand-to-hand -hand combat, but when they show up here, I do feel like it's a Hobbit victory. Yeah, they're, they're kind of sitting there eating and drinking and smoking weed as hobbits do. <laughs> I, I love the fact that they look a little bit taller because they drank some of Treebeard's special Ent water. And yeah, they are the heroes. They, they're kind of sitting there all confident while everyone else is war-weary. Yeah, uh, but I, I just want to say, uh, readers should discover it for themselves, but the imagery, the use of language here, Tolkien, I don't think he's written any better, any of the conflicts. I mean, I remember loving from the movie that fight of Balrog, but I don't think the way that he presented that battle in Fellowship of the Rings is anywhere near how great it comes off the page here at the mid-climax. At the climax of this book one of two inside Two <laughs> Towers, I really think is really my favorite part so far of this whole series. I, I'm going to say overall, I think the writing is better here. Whether he was getting more of the story in his head, uh, whether maybe it's just more exciting stuff than walking around and falling into barrel wit pits. But yeah, the, the writing, I am gripped by a lot of the stuff throughout this Two Towers book. Yeah, all over it's better. Even when it's lagging, I don't feel like we ever got the lulls, the painful hundred-page lulls that I felt in, were going on in Fellowship. I mean, it should be pointed out, this book is a hundred pages less than Fellowship. You can feel the difference. It just pacing everything. Good job on getting us going. I think once Tolkien really set out and, and, and got what he wanted to get across, he doesn't stop. And so it's almost a disappointment when we have to switch gears. They they win the battle, so to speak. Saruman is trapped in his tower. He's not killed. They don't go marching in there, but Gandalf takes away his power. He kind of breaks his staff magically and says, you're out of the club. <laughs> 
And Wormtongue throws down the crystal ball in defeat, or was he trying to brain one of them? What what was that about? Yeah, the, he throws out the Palantir, which is this, yeah, this crystal ball that Saruman was using to talk to the Dark Lord. Saruman's super pissed when this happens, too. Like, this was a, I, I laugh, this is pretty funny to me, yeah. Wormtongue, he's just trying to throw something, hit Theoden, hit one of these guys that have locked him up in this tower now, and it ends up being a super important artifact. Although I got to say, from our modern perspective, cell phones are better. I mean, if all it is is a telephone line to talk to the Dark Lord over at Mortar, I don't know. It's not that impressive. But yeah, it really sucks. Does is this ruin it for him? Does he not have any wizardry power? I know that the Ents kind of take root or the, all these trees kind of come in and there's like now a forest where there once was destruction. They flooded the place. They're taking root. I get the sense that this whole land is going to change and, and be turned into something much more lush and natural and the evil influence will be rich. Yeah, my, my take is that Saruman no longer has power. He's not a wizard anymore, but there's something about the tower, Orthonk and Isengard, <laughs> to say all these names. Like, at one mm-hmm. point, the Ents, they try to, like, I guess when they fight, they kind of just, like, plant their roots into something and expand and destroy. They're not able to destroy this tower. The, the rock is too slick. It's too hard. So, yeah, Saruman's only trapped in there, but he has no power, and Treebeard is the, the warden of his jail. Yeah, I I like this. This is a satisfactory end for this character. I feel like this front is over. We don't need to worry about any evil coming from the West. At this point, all of our focus now needs to shift towards the East, towards Mordor. Remember that? That's where (laughs) Sam and Frodo have wound up. That's where the second half of this story is going to take place. The journey to get to... I guess they have to go to that tower with the evil red eye. Is that where the lava pit is to melt the ring? No, there... There's Mount Doom. There's a volcano there, and that's they have to put it into the fires of Mount Doom. Okay. The tower just overlooks Mordor. As we get back to Sam and Frodo, they're trying to get to the Black Gate. Like, they're just trying to go to the front door. That's all they know. They're like, we'll just go, I don't know, knock on the door, try to sneak through the front door of Mordor, and get to Mount Doom. But they have to get to Mordor, get through the front gate, and get to this giant volcano. It's pretty impenetrable, unless you're an evil person. There's lots of pilgrimages on the roads of of wannabe terrorists that are coming to the Dark Lord. They're coming through Gondor in the south, and they're heading into this eastern land to want to be evil and fight the evil fight. They think Dark Lord's going to win. But if you're a hobbit trying to get in through the gates, it's not going to work for you. It's almost lucky that Gollum should come crawling up behind them looking for his precious ring. Yeah, we've talked about uneasy alliances and betrayal, Saruman and the Dark Lord, and here's another one. Gollum, he he wants to, at least he wants to pretend to help Sam and Frodo because if he gets to walk along with them until they get to Mordor, he's that much closer to the ring. I mean, Gollum, there should be no doubt what his desires are, but it's interesting that that's He's willing to help these two hobbits to get what he wants. Yeah, I think it's a struggle. I think Frodo even recognizes this. At some point, as you mentioned, they meet Boromir's brother, and he offers to kill him. He's like, I don't think you should be hanging with that guy. (laughs) Let's end this. It's Frodo that has his life spared. I think that Frodo, because he's wearing this ring, and he can recognize how perverse it can make your soul i think he thinks that there are two inside there there's the evil Gollum, and then there's the good smeagol the the 
creature that was there before. Yeah, or or as Sam calls them, slinker and stinker. <laughs> <laughs> but it, what's interesting, you know, there, there's I think the most famous scene in the Two Towers. You, you say you're all about Gollum is that scene where he the two different versions, Smeagol and Gollum, are talking to himself towards mm-hmm. the end of that film. And I was surprised that does come out of the book. There there is a scene where he's debating with himself, and it talks about the color of his eyes that they flash different colors depending if it's Smeagol or if it's Gollum. You know, talking. You know, one's a green and one's a more pale yellow. So. I, I do like that Gollum is still conflicted here. It's like almost like, hey, I got friends finally, and they're willing to hang out with me. I kind of like that, but that there's always that drive to get the precious back. Yeah, there's a duality theme throughout this. I mean, it is called Two Towers, and I do feel like lots of times there are, yeah, two sides of things. Gollum is the most easy representation of that. He is easily the most enjoyable character here. I do feel like he almost looms too large on the second half of the novel. I'm laughing every time he's talking. I'm sad when he disappears to go eat worms. He can't handle their crackers, so he disappears from time to time to go eat on living creatures, and uh, yeah, I I do feel like he's more interesting than our hobbit. Yeah, again, Sam, he's kind of like the duller... I always felt like he's the working class hobbit. He's a gardener, comes from a family of Gardeners, the way he talks is kind of lower class. And again, Frodo, yeah, he does have literally the burden of the world on around his neck. And there are times throughout this book where he's literally being dragged by the ring, like, to and fro. He's so under the spell of this ring, he... He has moments that are interesting where he, you know, rises up and becomes very powerful to order Smeagol to do something or to rebuke Sam when you really see that power of the ring taking him over. But for the most part, if Smeagol wasn't here, if Gollum wasn't here, I, I feel like a lot of this second book, it's a lot of walking around. They're walking through marshes and they see dead ghosts in the marshes. And yeah, gloom. Yeah, eventually they want to get to the Black Gate. And Gollum, he's smart. He, he's a tricky one. So at times he's like, well, I'm just doing what you told me, Master. Just doing what you told me. But I love, you know, as much as all this journey, I just want to read one passage. I do love Tolkien when he wants to get about how evil Mordor is and just all the darkness going on. I, I do love some of the language. I'm going to just read one passage as they approach the Black Gate. You know, they never get right to it. They kind of overlook it. And it says... Uh, beneath the hills on either side, the rock was bored into a hundred caves and maggot holes. There a host of orcs lurked, ready at a signal to issue forth like black ants going to war. None could pass the teeth of Mordor and not feel their bite, unless they were summoned by Sauron or knew the secret passwords that would open the Marinon, the black gate of his land. Yeah, good stuff. I agree. It is creepy. I mean, as we get closer and closer, I can feel it. And Sam even has a theory. He thinks Gollum is getting more evil with each step towards it, which makes me ask the question, has Gollum been plotting this whole time to lead them into the spider cave? Or was that an inspiration once the gate didn't work out? No, so they see this gate and they see it's impossible. Like, like that passage I just read, you don't want to try to cross that Mm-mm. and get to the Black Gate. You can't. So, so yeah, Gollum says, no, nah, we really shouldn't go to the Black Gate. I know another way. I know a secret way. And they're going to go uh, by this dead city. And this is where they have these adventures with Faramir and meet him. But eventually they're going to find a staircase that I guess an ancient staircase that goes over the hills, a back way. And this was the way that Gollum escaped. If you remember in Fellowship of the Ring, it was talked about how he was interrogated and tortured by Sauron to find out where the ring was. And then they 
quote-unquote let him go, you know, wink-wink, nudge-nudge, letting Gollum think he was sneaking away just so they could kind of keep an eye on him. And he discovered this gate, and I get the sense that he already knew about Shelob. This, I, I again, love the description of Shelob. This it, love crafty and evil that lives in the mountains there. It, it's kind of like a spider, but sounds more evil. And th- th- there's passages where Gollum is like bowing and worshiping her and saying, hey, I'm going to bring you these two things. I'm going to feed you. Let me have passage. And and he's making deals with this this evil in the mountains. Yeah, and you know, and I have been complaining. Last time I complained, there are no good female characters in this. I mean, other than <laughs> Galandriel or whatever, who, who basically lives in the forest and gives out presents, and everyone talks about how pretty she is, I really haven't felt like any of these female characters that pop in and out matter until now. And you do have a really badass female character. Admittedly, she's a bad guy, a, a spider that may not be the most flattering feminist archetype, but I think it's cool. And yeah, this is nightmarish that they double team our hobbits here. Gollum goes for Sam and Shelob goes for Frodo and gets him, bites him. Yeah. Stings him, poisons him with venom, wraps him up in webs to the point where Sam thinks he's dead. You know, Sam eventually fights off Gollum. He doesn't know where he went off to. They had that that file of water, they call it, from Galadriel, where it lights up in dark places and they're kind of able to fend off Shelob. It blinds her and Sam gets the upper hand. For a little bit. For a little bit, yeah. only to find that Frodo, he believes Frodo is dead. And th- this, I think, is the most surprising. And, and yet, yeah, there is foreshadowing here. I mean, there, there's this whole little discussion that Frodo and Sam have where they're just talking about stories and adventures and, you know, w- what real stories are made up. I-, I think it's a couple great paragraphs. It's not too much. But, you know, Sam says, this Frodo, this story is going to be all about you. And Frodo's like, well, what about, you know, Samwise, who stood by Frodo and the stout heart? And you see that here. Like, uh, to me, this was a shock when I read this the first time. Sam takes the ring. He believes Frodo is dead. He can't drag him. He decides he must take the ring and finish the task by himself and leaves Frodo behind while he bears the ring around his neck. And I remember that coming out of left field for me when I saw the movie of Return of the King, that there is a turning point where they suddenly say, Sam matters, not Frodo. And I was like, he does? I had no idea, but you're right. It is here on the page. It's very clear on the page that he, yeah, without Sam, Frodo wouldn't have gotten as far as he did and that he's willing to, to finish the deed that he doesn't believe Frodo can do anymore because he thinks he's dead. Yeah, it's powerful and he's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Frodo is alive and become a captive of orcs. They drag him behind a gate and now Sam's locked out, but at least he has the ring. The bad guys don't have the ring at the end of this two towers. Yeah, I like this cliffhanger. I think this book about Frodo and Sam started a little slow. It takes a while to get going, but once you get into Mordor, once they start descending the steps, and this is a great cliffhanger. I I, want to start reading the next book. Like, Sam is separated from Frodo, has the ring. Frodo is captive by orcs. You know, we, we had a good feeling with the other part of the fellowship. They had just won a big war, defeated a wizard, and they're kind of happy. And they're going to go to, I guess, Gondor's to see what's next to help fight this war. But man, this is such a downer note that the Two Towers ends up on. I, I can't wait to get into Return of the King to see how it ends. Yeah, not one, but two really good climaxes to get us excited about the conclusion here. I want to just wrap up here by saying that I'm really 
really impressed with how much more engaged I am this time because I not only care about the quest to melt this ring, but I care about just about every other character. That Helmsteen stuff really has me invested in other realms and human characters. I can honestly say I still don't care about the elf. Legolas, he hasn't done anything. Gimli, the dwarf, he's got a lot of goodwill left over from The Hobbit, but... I do have to say, though, I, I they get more characterization here. That was one of my complaints with Fellowship. Like, they're bonding, and I get their bond. There's a whole discussion, you know, if we get out of this war alive, I'm going to take you through the caves, and you could take me through the forest, and they're counting their dead. I Yeah, they had that moment. At least they feel like they're characters now instead of just different types, you know, different, an elf and a dwarf running around. I I like that they're becoming more characters. They are. They have more shading to them. But when I look at Aragorn, I think, oh, wow, Return of the King, he's going to do something cool next time. I'm wondering if Legolas is going to do anything cool other than shoot an arrow next time. They're not my favorite (laughs) characters, but I do feel like I'm invested and I really want to see, yeah, this this final book, how it's all going to turn out. We'll know next week when we get there. Thanks so much for reading, guys. Thank you, Jacob, for joining me. It's a lot of fun. We got one more to go, and we'll be through The Lord of the Rings. Keep reading. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Yeah, Marin and Pippi... Pippi... <laughs> Yeah, Marin, Marin. I can't even say their fucking name. Cheech Marin and yeah. Pippi Longstocking, Mary and Pippin. Okay, because Sam is tasked with having to carry this evil ring around his neck on a chain. You he, mean Frodo? Oh God, damn it! <laughs>